So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the November 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Alan Walkie, Assistant Professor of Medicine from Boston University School of Medicine and the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care in Boston, Massachusetts. He'll be discussing his article, Long-Term Outcomes Following Development of Nuonset Atrial Fibrillation During Sepsis. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Also joining us today is Dr. Gregory Lipp, Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Birmingham Center for Cardiovascular Sciences at City Hospital in Birmingham within the United Kingdom. He'll be discussing his accompanying editorial, Atrial Fibrillation During Sepsis, A Determination of Long-Term Outcomes. Greg, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me as well. So, guys, um, you know, obviously, what a what a fantastic article! I, I, I when I read it um, and the editorial that goes with it, it just it really brought a lot of things into my mind. But what I what I wanted to do at the beginning was make sure that all of our listeners are are up to speed, because though it obviously seems obvious um, that AFib during sepsis is not good you know, acutely, could you outline for us though the the known negative consequences of AFib during sepsis, and then sort of, you know, what was the historical thought process then after that? You know, that, it, hey, sepsis resolved, AFib's resolved, you're good, um, and, and we'll lead that into what made you think of, of exploring it further. So if you sure. could just give us, some, give us some backdrop. Sure, I'd be happy to. So th- this work that I've done with atrial fibrillation during sepsis really began when I was a fellow and training in critical care, and uh, I had noticed that a lot of the patients in the ICU were getting new atrial fibrillation. They had no history of it before that I could tell. And when they got it, bad things seemed to happen. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot written about what to do about it or what it meant for them in the short term or long term. And so our first uh, investigation looked into what atrial fibrillation might mean in the, in the short term uh, for patients with severe sepsis. So. Um, you know, atrial fibrillation, when the atrial loses its contractile ability, there could be a fall in cardiac output, and the high heart rates um, associated with atrial fibrillation often during sepsis can lead to further drop in cardiac output. And, um, you know, in a patient who's already unstable with sepsis, we thought potentially could lead to bad outcomes. And I think many of us have seen that happen. And it uh, also seems like when these patients get atrial fibrillation during sepsis, that the atrial fibrillation is uh, especially hard to control. Oftentimes they're on catecholamine pressors that uh, might make things a little more difficult to manage. And so we had initially looked at atrial fibrillation during sepsis in a large population-based study, uh, first to see whether uh, sepsis might actually increase the risk for atrial fibrillation versus sort of other conditions among hospitalized patients. And we did find an increased risk for atrial fibrillation occurring during sepsis versus sort of other patients who are hospitalized for other conditions, um, you know, even after adjusting for uh, cardiovascular comorbidities. It was almost a seven-fold increased risk of getting AFib during sepsis than if you're hospitalized for something else as, as a new onset of atrial fibrillation. And uh, we had looked uh, at what the short-term outcomes might be, looking at in-hospital mortality and, and in-hospital new strokes and atrial fibrillation during sepsis was actually associated with an increased risk for uh, mortality during a sepsis hospitalization and an increased risk actually of having a, a new stroke um, during the hospitalization with sepsis. And so um, sort of uh, along the lines of what we had thought that when atrial fibrillation occurs during uh, sepsis uh, as a new event, 
from our clinical observation that it might be associated with bad outcomes. That, that's what we observed when we actually looked at the data. So, I mean, you know, acutely then, I mean, there's uh, your data probably reflects, I think, what most of us just, you know, anecdotally have experienced working in a critical care setting. You know, that there's, there's obviously nothing good about AFib, uh, and, and it, com it compromises our ability to provide care, and then obviously some of the short-term disastrous consequences that can occur from it, as, as you just outlined. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, and, and, and Greg, you too, I... I the understanding, I thought, historically, or at least the bias was, okay, the sepsis resolves, maybe they cardiovert back, and okay, all's good, you know, you're, you're fine, and no AFib, and, you know, good luck. <laughs> um, is, has that sort of been the predominating, you know, thought process historically? Uh, yeah, indeed. I think in the past that has very much been the thought process, but now we're coming to realize how common atrial fibrillation is, and it's almost really the necessity for increased awareness that, uh, so that we can actually think about it, look harder, look for longer, but keep looking, and more importantly, uh, it's to treat it appropriately to avoid the complications uh, related to atrial fibrillation, most notably stroke and increased mortality as well as heart failure, as Alan's very nicely shown in his study. And uh, we, we must remember, even from the historical stroke prevention trials uh, from 20 years ago, nearly 20 years ago now, anticoagulation actually uh, not only reduced all-cause stroke, all strokes, but also significantly reduced all-cause mortality. So atrial fibrillation, stroke reduction is, uh, is significant with anticoagulation. Uh, anticoagulation also saves lives. And those, I think, were the two... Uh, impressive endpoints from uh, Alan's paper. Uh, now, heart failure, of course, and atrial fibrillation, they just go hand in hand. And some of the pathophysiology uh, related to new onset atrial fibrillation may well also be in common with heart failure. Uh, but the message really is uh, think about it, look hard, and then um, look harder and longer. And afterwards, um, if it doesn't mean that they've reverted back to normal rhythm. You can, you can uh, stop treatment for atrial fibrillation and forget of surveillance. So it's, it's important to have this awareness. So, so Alan, that's a, that's a perfect segue. Why don't, you, why don't you go through, you know, what you guys did? Let's go through your, through your paper and, and with that kind of backdrop as to, you know, what you were able to show that is obviously, uh, I think, changing some of the, the thought process of, you know, hey, AFib resolved, all good, um, to make us think a little bit more long-term and longitudinally for our sepsis survivors who had their sepsis complicated by AFib. Uh, sure. So uh, that was exactly our, our hypothesis was uh, that sort of contrary to the prevailing opinions that atrial fibrillation that occurred during an acute uh, illness such as sepsis, when the sepsis resolves, the atrial fibrillation resolves, and that's the end of it. We thought that the atrial fibrillation might be a signal for more atrial fibrillation later and, and, its, and its consequences. And so how did we explore that hypothesis? Um, we use Medicare data. Uh, so then we used a Medicare 5% sample uh, from 1999 to 2010. The nice thing about Medicare data in many ways is that it's longitudinal, so you can look at one patient in time and follow them both backwards and forwards in time. And we can follow them through um, outpatient and inpatient, um, basically, billing claims that uh, contain a list of diagnoses that occurred during those uh, encounters with healthcare. So what we did was we found patients who had sepsis uh, based on some validated uh, algorithms. We looked back two years from then to find 
uh, whether they ever had atrial fibrillation um, diagnosis before the sepsis. Um, we also were able to get their other cardiovascular comorbidities uh, coming in to the sepsis hospitalization. And then for the survivors of sepsis, we looked uh, five years out from the sepsis to see whether uh, the atrial fibrillation status during sepsis was associated with future uh, complications. So we define the atrial fibrillation status during sepsis um, as either the patient had pre-existing atrial fibrillation, that is they had a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation prior to the sepsis hospitalization. They had no atrial fibrillation, which means they had no diagnosis before sepsis and no diagnosis during sepsis, or new onset atrial fibrillation, which was they had a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation during sepsis but had never had uh, one before. Um, and the outcomes we were looking at were an atrial fibrillation diagnosis recurring in the future um, or heart failure, stroke, or, or death up to five years. And, um, you know, we, uh, we used Cox uh, proportional hazards models with a competing risk of, um, of death to look at the incidence, the cumulative incidence rates of these outcomes after sepsis. Uh, so what we found Yes, please. Sure. <laughs> so what we found was that uh, we were able to identify 138,000 uh, sepsis survivors. So the nice thing about using this administrative data um, is that there's a lot of it, and there you can really get um, a big a big picture view of things uh, that are happening. Um, we found that using the competing risk models was probably very appropriate because 44% of patients died within their first year after sepsis. And so, you know, if you look at our table one, these are Medicare beneficiaries. They're older patients. Their average age is about 80. They have lots of comorbidities. And, uh, um, you know, this, I think, highlights a lot about the emerging literature of um, survivorship after sepsis and uh, post-intensive care syndrome that, um, while we've been able to decrease the, um, the mortality acutely for sepsis, as been shown by some of these recent trials that have come out, um, the longer-term outcomes are still poor. Um, but we found that of those that had new onset atrial fibrillation during sepsis, about uh, almost 50% of them had new onset had had their atrial fibrillation recur within one year after sepsis. And uh, that was compared with only 7% of those without um, atrial fibrillation prior to sepsis or during sepsis having uh, a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation um, after the sepsis hospitalization. So it appeared that the atrial fibrillation that had occurred during sepsis was a signal for increased atrial fibrillation risk later, uh, which was contrary to sort of the prevailing uh, thoughts about what was happening with atrial fibrillation. And then in addition, we found that atrial fibrillation that occurred newly during sepsis was associated with increased risks of death, heart failure, and stroke uh, up to five years following sepsis when compared with those that did not have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation previously. That was to me some of the, um, I mean, I was struck by exactly what you just said from both, both tables in the sense of the, the, the rate of AFib, I mean, it starts to get very close to paralyzing the group or to paralleling to the group that already had AFib prior to the sepsis. I mean, they, they literally, they just sort of jump ship and become a, the same population as the group that had always had AFib. 
Yeah, they certainly uh, approach they, they that. They get close. How about that? Yeah, yep. they get close. How about that? <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. They definitely approach that group. And, you know, looking at sort of the, the cumulative incidence curves that are in the paper for these outcomes that, you know, you, you see the same pattern in all three curves where those with, you know, prior AF, they, they seem to have the worst outcomes. Uh, but, and then those with no AF, they have a, the, the best outcomes, and then the nuance at atrial fibrillation during sepsis folks are in the middle of all those curves. So uh, certainly it looks like they're at increased risk for, for bad outcomes, uh, just purely associated with this new atrial fibrillation that was occurring during the sepsis. So I'm curious then, from, from both your perspectives, um, what are the implications for this, um, you know, just even on a practical day-to-day? -day? I mean, uh, you know, I've got a patient who survives sepsis. They come back to, you know, our clinic. Um, you know, is this somebody that we need to be ha actively plugged in with a cardiologist? Is this someone who should be seen in sort of a post-critical care-oriented clinic? Is, or just go back to your primary care doctor and... and you know, let us know when you feel palpitations. <laughs> you know, what, what do you think? I mean, I recognize we're not going to have data, but where do you think this should go? Well, I'll, I'll give my cardiology take on this because I think if they've had an episode of atrial fibrillation detected during sepsis, uh, Kelly Allen's papers identifies how high risk these patients are. They will need uh, at least a cardiology consult and workup. Uh, we, as mentioned earlier, atrial fibrillation is so common, and particularly with multiple co co uh, comorbidities and various risk factors. And if should should they have uh, multiple stroke risk factors by the Chas Vasco as, as in the guidelines now, uh, they should the default should be actually to uh, seriously consider stroke prevention because the sad thing is uh, even though the atrial fibrillation may well have resolved subsequently, uh, as uh, they are still at high risk should the atrial fibrillation recur and very often asymptomatic in the presence of stroke risk factors, and the sad thing will be their presentation will be to an acute stroke unit next as opposed to the, uh, to, to the, to the critical care unit. Um, this, is, this does bring another practical take as well because the, um, many of the, old, the, the older guidelines have very much uh, been very focused on identifying patients at high risk of complications related to atrial fibrillation and just take, let's, let's just take stroke as an example. So, for example, older guidelines focus on identifying the high risk patients and because those were, that was the time when uh, essentially if we were considering stroke prevention with anticoagulation, we'd, we only had uh, the, the Coumadins and, yeah, and that we didn't have a choice. These days now, the fact that we recognize AF is so common, and we have, uh, apart from Coumadin's, other choices for stroke prevention in the form of anticoagulants, um, certainly the European guidelines in relation to management of atrial fibrillation, the focus has changed around that the first step actually is to identify the low-risk patients with atrial fibrillation, those at low risk of complications such as stroke. And those low-risk patients are a chance of ASCO zero for men or a chance of ASCO one for females. They are low risk and they don't need antithrombotic therapy. And subsequent to that step, so step two after that is basically patients with atrial fibrillation, irrespective of rhythm, um, the fact, and if they have uh, one, uh, if they have certainly a chance of a one in men or a chance of a two and above for both male and female, uh, the default should be stroke prevention. So in step two, one or more additional stroke risk factors, they need anticoagulation treatment. So the, the focus now should be first to identify the low-risk patients, um, uh, and that includes part of the workup, including echocardiography, full clinic cardiovascular consult history. 
do we, do either of you at your medical centers is this is this commonplace for then for somebody who's you know there there's a they're a septic they're in the intensive care unit they go into atrial fibrillation but most critical care physicians are adept at you know handling the the issue in the immediate sense um, you know sepsis resolves they return to let's let's assume they go back to a sinus based rhythm and and you know again we think all is well uh, the things resolve they go out to the general medicine ward they go home um, is there automatically any form of a cardiovascular workup while they're in-house? Are they automatically, when they're discharged, um, uh, referred back to see cardiovascular specialists, you know, uh, within, you know, let's say a month of discharge or, or whatever? Does, does that occur routinely? Um, it does occur in my center because of, uh, of a certainly they would either get a cardiology consult whilst, whilst they're inpatient after they're certainly doing the intensive care or, or after being stepped down from the intensive care, they would certainly get a cardiology consult. Uh, at worst, if they go to general medicine uh, and they don't manage to see a cardiologist, they would they would certainly get booked into the atrial fibrillation clinic. Okay. And, what, and that, what about you, Alan? Yeah. So at my center, I think practice is pretty variable. We don't have a standard protocol as of yet, right. you know, for for how to deal with these folks. And and I think, you know. Um, you know, one of the things that we had found was that among the patients that had a stroke um, after their sepsis hospitalization, that um, almost half of them, uh, almost half of those that had new onset atrial fibrillation during sepsis did not have another detected uh, diagnosis of atrial fibrillation before that stroke. Okay. So, so one of these messages of, of that this might be a missed opportunity when we're detecting this, um, these potentially higher risk patients, that you know, Dr. Lip had touched on that these might be a missed opportunity for for intervening uh, here. And you know, I think one of the one of the um, one of the issues that I still uh, you know debate internally is that um, I'm not sure what the what the risks are of anticoagulation in sort of these folks coming out from sepsis, um, and whether right. you know what what is the the benefit risk ratio. I think in our, in this particular paper, we, we show potential benefits, uh, you know, I think fairly clearly, but we, we haven't really been able to um, identify potential risks associated with anticoagulation. I think, um, you know, certainly in, in my opinion, before sort of getting these folks all anticoagulated, we'd need to know a bit more about um, what the potential risks of bleeding would be in, in these folks, given that, um, you know, they have a, they, they, they have a high risk of renal disease and hypertension and these other things. And so um, I think that deserves more study um, of what the risks of bleeding are. Absolutely. And that, but I think the, that's still driven by the stroke risk factors. And I think uh, there's a number of studies, uh, that some, of, some of those are from our group as well, where if you're even looking at a very simplistic level of the net clinical benefit balancing the benefit of stroke reduction versus the potential for serious bleeding. Uh, the net, clin net clinical benefit is essentially positive for patients with one or more additional stroke risk factors. And uh, we recognize the strokes related to AF, uh, related to greater mortality, and they also great, related to greater disability and morbidity. They are staying in hospital far longer. And I suppose really I, I, I 
you know, having seen so many where the opportunities been missed, is it worth taking the risk? So I, I think it's driven by the presence of one or more additional stroke risk factors. And, and these days now, well, would we really give them aspirin? I mean, the data for aspirin more, uh, more recently was evaluated as part of the NICE guidelines in the UK, contrary to a lot of uh, other international guidelines, which are largely expert consensus-based. The NICE guidelines has a different methodology, which includes systematic reviews, evidence appraisal, then followed by cost-effectiveness. And the conclusion uh, with regard to aspirin was that it was hardly effective for preventing strokes. It was certainly not safe uh, for for at all in terms of the risk of major bleeds or intracranial hemorrhage with aspirin was uh, not that much different from uh, well-controlled warfarin or for that matter even one of the uh, NOACs, uh, the, the non, non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants. And then when you do the cost-effectiveness analysis, which was part of the NICE guideline methodology, aspirin was, was definitely not cost-effective. So it's uh, very clearly even stated in the NICE guideline, do not offer aspirin for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. Uh, the other aspect I think we tend to we as clinicians tend to forget a little bit is the patient perspective, and uh, I think uh, it's quite sobering. Uh, a number of studies are now in the literature. Most recent one uh, this year from a group from Canada, um, Stephen LaHaye published a uh, looking at patient attitudes. Uh, to stroke and bleeding risk in relation to anticoagulation or atrial fibrillations. Patients are desperate to avoid a stroke, and even simply to avoid one stroke, they're even prepared to sustain four major bleeds. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, pa- patients see a, a, a stroke as a fate worse than death, and mm. you, you can understand why, because sure. you know, they're disabled, they're dependent on people, incontinent, require, sometimes requiring full care, especially how severe strokes related to atrial fibrillation are. So, you know, I, 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 uh, one of the uh, my research interests in our group is actually the patient-centered, patient values and, and preferences aspect of uh, stroke prevention in AF, and because my uh, uh, colleague is a Who's, who's my who's senior lecturer in the UK, which is equivalent of associate professor in the, in the states? She's a psychologist, actually, and has very much been looking into the aspects of patient uh, research, patient-centered research. But pa- the bottom line is, patients are desperate to avoid stroke, and the, and the evidence, as we have it, and that clinical benefit is in favor of anticoagulating patients with one or more additional stroke risk factors. And then the last message, of course, is aspirins, aspirins, uh, ineffective and hardly safe. So, Greg, is, is Alan's data then strong enough to immediately say, like, a, a sepsis episode during, or sorry, an AFib episode during sepsis should be then uh, immediately classified as a long-term risk factor for stroke and that we should be adding that into then our clinical decision-making? Uh, I think those patients require a um, cardiology uh, workup. Okay. Uh, as, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the risk is uh, my take on uh, on, on Alan's papers um, that um, uh, these patients are at risk, but you, ultimately the decision with regard to decisions on anticoagulation or not would be driven by uh, the presence of stroke risk factors. I mean, right. you may well have, for example, uh, 
let's say hypothetically, 25-year-old uh, person getting a severe pneumonia and sepsis and getting atrial fibrillation, and after they're, they're during the intensive care, but they get discharged after it's fully recovered, fully treated. Essentially, in terms of stroke risk profile, they have a chance of score one for female or chance of score zero for male. So, in terms of probability-wise, in terms of their long-term stroke risk, uh, it's probably going to be pretty low. But the, the more usual scenario would, of course, as would be, you know, 70-year-old with heart failure and diabetes. And, okay, they, were, they, they had sepsis, went into atrial fibrillation in intensive care. That was treated. The atrial fibrillation resolved. Um, as part of cardiology workup, that patient already has, you know, a chance of three or four. I would, I would have a low threshold to anticoagulate that patient. Because uh, it already tells me the fact that the sepsis episode is already, it's already that patient has this propensity to get atrial fibrillation. Now, we can of course, uh, and 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 it's just how hard we look. I mean, we can't we can't. Sort, uh, the technology is improving, as I suppose. And but uh, you know, 12 lead ECGs at clinic visits every couple of months isn't going to be able to pick up the AF. I mean, the, you know, right. symptoms are not going to pick up the AF because AF is very often asymptomatic. So I think uh, those patients, if they have, if, if, if the decision will be driven by the presence of stroke risk factors. So, as, as you know, really the first, first, first decision step really is low risk or not. If it's low risk, no need for anything, no antithrombotic therapy at all. Uh, then step two, presence of one or more additional stroke risk factors, decision made, and to uh, offer stroke prevention. So, so, Alan, where are you guys going next then with this work? Um, I mean, this is obviously a, a large body of work. It was a great data set, and, and I think it's as, as something that one of the things that, you know, shifts the paradigm, but I think also it you know, doesn't shift it in a way that everyone's going to sort of be stuck in their dogma. I mean, it, it, it sort of obviously makes sense. Um, where are you guys going next with this? Um, are you interested in doing a, an intervention-based trial, you know, post-sepsis survivor with AFib and, you know, dividing people into anticoagulation or not, even if there aren't other risk factors? For example. Sure. And, and, <laughs> sure. And, and just before I answer, just to take one little step back, and I think uh, Dr. Lip highlighted this issue was, that our our paper is in Medicare patients, so they're all older than age 65, and, and the average age was you know 80 here. So um, you know I'm not sure what the outcomes are would be in a younger you know potentially healthier population coming in with sepsis. And so in terms of future directions, that's one future direction is to try to expand uh, looking at this in younger patients and seeing what their outcome risks are. Um, uh, there and, and how does this data generalize to, to other age groups? Um, other uh, future potential future directions are, you know, it's not clear what um, how this is communicated now and what patients are getting uh, discharge or soon after hospital discharge with, with sepsis that have atrial fibrillation. I think, um, you know, the the most important thing I think that I would want to come out of this paper is that at the very least that, you know, in, the, in these discharge summaries or communications with outpatient providers that the occurrence of atrial fibrillation during the sepsis hospitalization is communicated to whoever will be taking care of that patient uh, after, after the hospitalization, and they can, as Dr. Lip alluded to, you know, evaluate um, risk benefits of, of treatment, talk to the patient, and, and decide where to go from there. But it's unclear, you know, 
what's happening now. And so I think a, certainly a, a trial would be wonderful, but before doing that, knowing sort of what's happening out there in terms of practices and, and what then uh, interventions can be done to change uh, current practice um, would, would then be better targeted in a, in a trial. Yeah. I think you've, you flagged it up just now in one of your earlier comments. You said there's a bit of variability even, even within your own center on, on what practice is. Uh, yeah. And I think somehow to uh, maybe as a message to flag up really is the high-risk nature of such patients uh, at, and uh, to reemphasize the issue that uh, their subsequent risk uh, is very much uh, dependent on and driven by the presence of uh, stroke risk factors. And, and uh, what we, as mentioned in our center, at least, uh, we, we, we do have some sort of pathway where uh, cardiology input is either uh, as an inpatient or as an early outpatient because they, they would get, uh, the default would be to uh, get them into the AF service uh, earlier rather than later. Mm. Well, I was, I was thinking about this as, as you both were saying that, that, you know, we have obviously tons of protocols now with, within the intensive care unit uh, to, you know, that, to standardize care, to, to take, you know, evidence-based uh, guidelines and principles to, to help our patients with better outcomes, et cetera. But, Boy, it sure seems to all end as soon as they roll out of the intensive care unit, doesn't it? That that we, there's, it's not been a large avenue of exploration. The, 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 clearly, some people have been looking in other areas as well. But but that the post intensive care, you know, outpatient care, like it, it seems to be a gap in our in our critical care spectrum that we sort of you know finish with you and then we're kind of done with you. Um, and I wonder if that needs to be one of our next major kind of changes as a, you know, culturally within the field of critical care. I, I think so. I think definitely, um, you know, we're going to be seeing, we're doing better with the acute stuff and we're going to be seeing a lot more of these patients that have survived these serious illnesses and, uh, you know, dealing with that, those survivors and, and improving their quality of life and, uh, hopefully duration of life and quality of life, I think is the next frontier for critical care research in many ways. Dr. Lip, what do you think? Uh, absolutely, and, and I think um, that there's, there's, there's very much, um, in, in, many, in many units, there's, uh, there's sort of um, protocol protocol and operating procedure overload, I suppose. But this one, <laughs> I think, in a sense, is to, in a sense, try, try to make it uh, as simple as possible, I suppose, to, uh, uh, to, to basically think AF equals stroke prevention unless, uh, un, you know, unless proven otherwise. Yeah. Well, guys, we've been talking for a little bit, and I want to be respectful of everybody's time. I, I um, Wondered if there was anything else point-wise that the two of you wanted to make that we just, you know, hasn't come up during our discussion and, and that you're, you're, you're itching to make. Or if not, then let me hear some of your final thoughts for our, for our listeners. Uh, for me, I think the only other uh, point that I w wanted to bring up that, you know, I think Dr. Lip had also alluded to was we, we looked at whether the CHADS 2 vascor might, might be predictive after sepsis, you know, in the, in the, as Dr. Lip could explain much better than I could that the studies for the stroke risk scores, you know, had mostly excluded patients with sepsis or, you know, acute, acutely ill um, during, during the hospitalizations. And, and so we had just wanted to see what was the discriminative abil ability of those scores after sepsis. And we did find that the 
see statistic or the, the discrimination of stroke uh, for the CHAD score after sepsis was in line with what had been reported, you know, not during sepsis. So um, I think that those scores probably can be used following sepsis as well as, you know, they're commonly used out, outside of those settings. Well, I was wondering what Dr. Lip's take would be on that as well. Well, uh, uh, no, I, 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 I note, noted that in your, in your paper too. Uh, I mean, the C statistic, of, of course, has lots of debates related to that, but essentially <laughs> that is the score to see how good the, the, the that is the statistical measure, how good the score is to predict a high-risk patient getting an event, essentially. Uh, but the, uh, um, and, uh, and actually, CHAS-VAS is actually also pretty reasonably good to predict stroke in non-AFIP patients as well. Yeah. But I think the, the, pathway, the, 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 the pathway needs to change to what I mentioned before. The first decision step, step one is actually pick out the low-risk patients. Low-risk patients are CHAS-VAS 0 for men and CHAS-VAS 1 for females. Uh, and those low-risk patients don't need any antithrombotic therapy. And that, uh, that there is, a, on, that, on that step one, there is a fairly reasonably good consistency. CHAS-VAS is the best uh, simple clinical score to pick out low-risk patients. Step two is then uh, offer stroke prevention to other patients with one or more additional stroke risk factors. So it's as simple as that. Because once you get to step two, it doesn't matter if it's CHASVAS 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or whatever, or you add in one or ten biomarkers or you add in cerebral imaging or you add in echo, it doesn't really matter. The decision's already made for anticoagulation. So that's, this is this is uh, stroke risk assessment made uh, stro stroke risk assessment made easy. So step one: identify low risk, chances zero for men, chances one for females. No antithrombotic therapy. Step two: offer stroke prevention to uh, everyone else with one or more additional stroke risk factors. So uh, if we need a very simple protocol or operating procedure for uh, intensive care, well, there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, terrific. I, I, unless you guys have anything else to add or a finishing thought, I will say this. I, as always, enjoy, I mean, I'm, I've got, I think, one of the best jobs. I enjoy the podcast a lot, and I will say, as always, um, great papers and an absolutely great discussion. Um, can I get some finishing thoughts from, from both you gentlemen? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, in the end, what we sought out to investigate was whether the uh, Long-term outcomes after sepsis uh, in terms of atrial fibrillation and the potential complications of atrial fibrillation, whether those might be related to the occurrence of atrial fibrillation during sepsis, and that is what we found, that atrial fibrillation during sepsis signals a higher risk state for up to five years following sepsis, and uh, certainly uh, uh, looking at these patients that have atrial fibrillation occurring during sepsis as a higher risk group and uh, communicating those risks to patients and their outpatient providers after, uh, after their sepsis hospitalization and, and um, you know, considering them for alternative uh, um, surveillance or treatments, uh, I think, is, um, is sort of the next thing to look at. Greg? Uh, well, mine is very simple. Um, atrial fibrillation is very common. Look, look for it. Think about it. Look harder. 
and keep looking, and don't forget stroke prevention. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> well, guys, thanks so much again for your time. This was this was perfect, and uh, I, I thank you for. Um, I know our listeners are going to uh, obviously have enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Greatly enjoyed that. Thank you.